Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, physicist Harry Cliff explains how the universe is made, drawing on experimental data from the Large Hadron Collider and labs around the world. We hear how the basic building blocks of matter and four fundamental forces of nature make up the standard model of particle physics. You can learn more in Harry's book, How to Make an Apple Pie from Scratch. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 10th of August, 2021. Uh, I'm here to talk tonight about my, my new book, How to Make an Apple Pie from Scratch. And this book is essentially the story of the search for the answer to what I think is one of the most profound and most important questions that human beings have ever asked. And, and it's this, what are we made from? What is the world around us made from? And where did it come from? Now, this is a question that people have been thinking about for thousands of years, uh, and over the last few centuries, hundreds of different people, chemists, physicists, astrophysicists, cosmologists, have been working in one way or another to answer this question, and we've unraveled a huge amount of this story uh, over the last few centuries. And as far as I'm concerned, at least, this is one of the most exciting stories that I've ever, ever heard. Um, and it's one of, the, I think, one of the most exciting intellectual adventures that human beings have ever been on. And this is the story that I'll be telling about tonight, and it's also the story that's in my book. Now, I should probably start by saying, just in case some of you have come along for a cookery lesson, um, I, I should probably explain the title. So um, I spent a long time thinking about this book. It's been sort of gestating for about 10 years, as my long-suffering friends and family will tell you. And, um, but I spent quite a while trying to find the right way into the story. This, this story contains a lot of, at times, quite challenging concepts from particle physics, cosmology, astrophysics, and, and chemistry, and various other things. And I wanted a, a relatable way of keeping uh, the audience reminded that ultimately, no matter how sort of abstract and far off into the distant parts of the universe we get, we are still talking about ordinary physical stuff, the stuff that the world is made from. And uh, this, the, the title is actually inspired by a quote from Carl Sagan, who is a mythic figure in the pantheon of science communication. He spoke in this lecture theatre, I think, at least once, if not more than that. Um, and it's this line he spoke at the start of episode nine of the blockbuster 1980s science documentary series Cosmos. And in a slightly strange scene, uh, an apple pie is brought out to Carl Sagan, and he's sitting in the grand dining hall of Trinity College, Cambridge, and as the pie is set down in front of him, he turns to camera with a little twinkle in his eye, and apologies for the accent, and says something like, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Um, and what Sagan is saying, really, that is that even an object like an apple pie, even this very ordinary, mundane object, its ingredients go back far farther than just the kitchen where it was made. They go back all the way to the very first moments of the universe. So if we want to understand how to make even this rather ordinary object that we've all probably will at least have a go at making in our kitchens, we've got to understand the entire cosmic history of the universe. So this is how, how the story is framed. Um, so this talk and the book is really about starting with an apple pie and tracing its origins uh, back all the way as far as we can go to the Big Bang. And then the big question we're trying to answer is how far can we go? How far back can we go? And do we eventually reach a point where our understanding breaks down? Um, so this talk is actually going to be in two halves. Uh, the first half, I'm going to be telling you the story of what we have already found out, what we already know. 
Um, and this, uh, in the book, I tell this story. I tell the story of the, this, the, the people through history have helped to unravel, uh, unravel this story. I won't do all of that in this lecture because we actually would be here for 13.8 billion years, so I'll just summarize the, the key science points. And in the second half, I'm going to discuss the big open questions because, uh, to, to give you a spoiler, we don't yet know the full story. There are still bits of this recipe that are missing, and that's going to be the focus of the second half. So Carl Sagan actually, straight after this, this scene, he starts actually by picking up a knife and saying, what happens if I cut a piece out of this apple pie and then another and then another and keep going? How far can I go? So this is the question that lies behind one of the most important ideas in science, which is the atomic hypothesis. The idea that matter, ultimately, if you go far enough, is made of small indivisible points which you can't divide anymore. Now, in giving a talk like this, traditionally what you do is refer to the ancient Greeks, and you give credit to Democritus, who's supposed to be the first person who suggested that the universe might be made from atoms. Now, I think Democritus is the most overrated person in history, right? I mean, he, he never actually did anything to check whether this was right. He just sort of went, hmm, I wonder if the world is made of atoms, and that's it. So we, we don't, we're not going to give the credit to Democritus. I think the person we should really credit for the modern idea of the atom is this man. So this is John Dalton. Um, John Dalton was born in 1766 in Eaglesfield in the northwest of England. He was the son of a weaver from quite a poor background. But because he was a Quaker, he got a good, good education, moved to Manchester, which at the time was the beating heart of the burgeoning Industrial Revolution, and did various chemical experiments. And during his investigations of the chemical world, Dalton noticed that if you react two different chemical elements together, they always react in fixed proportions. So, for example, if you take the carbon and burn it in oxygen, that carbon always combines in, in oxygen in fixed ratios. You can get carbon, what we know is carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide, for example. And Dalton took this as evidence of the fact that matter is made of atoms. And the basic logic is if you have an atom A and atom B, you can only join them together in a certain way, and therefore you get these fixed proportions in your chemical reactions. So Dalton is really where we get the idea of atoms from. And in the 19th century, the view was that for every element in the periodic table, there was a small indivisible atom. And there was about, so there were about 90 or so of these different atoms. And that was all you needed to make everything in the universe. And if you think about it, all the complexity that we see around us, this is a pretty economical view of things, just 90 building blocks. Now, the question is then, well, where do these atoms come from? Well, someone else who also suggested the idea of atoms was Isaac Newton, and this was Newton's definition of an atom. He said, it seems probable to me that God, in the beginning, formed matter in solid, massy, hard, impenetrable, movable particles. So what Newton's vision of the atom, and indeed Dalton's, is that atoms are indestructible, they're immutable, and they were made by God in the beginning of time, and we're just left with them, and we can assemble them like Lego bricks, but that's, that's your lot. But of course, we know that atoms actually are not indivisible, and over the course at the very end of the 19th century and over the first few decades of the 20th century, physicists doing experiments in university laboratories gradually took the atom apart. And they found that the atom is not an indivisible nugget. It's got a nucleus at the center, which is positively charged, surrounded by these orbiting electrons, these negatively charged particles. And then in the 20s and 30s, more experiments were done where physicists started to fire projectiles at atoms, first using radioactive elements that spit out particles, and then later using particle accelerators. And they found that if they fired bits of atoms at other atoms, they could knock things out of the nucleus. And they discovered that the nucleus is indeed made of even smaller things called protons and neutrons. 
And once you, with it, so by about 1932, we have this picture of the atom as being made of three particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons. And in this way, you can start to explain the chemical elements of the periodic table. So you all know this, I'm sure, but hydrogen, for example, is one proton and one electron. Helium, the next simplest element, is two protons, two neutrons, and two electrons. And carbon, the next uh, carbon, for example, the carbon from apple pie, is six protons, six neutrons, and six electrons. And once we know that atoms are made of these smaller building blocks, this then allows people to think, well, presumably, if they're made of building blocks, you can assemble them. And the question then is, well, where did atoms come from? And over the course of the, the middle part of the 20th century, it's realized that ultimately most of the chemical elements are forged inside stars. And the problem here is that if you want to, say, force two protons together, let's say you want to make helium from hydrogen, protons are positively charged. In order to get them to fuse, you have to get them to within a thousandth of a trillionth of a meter of each other. But the electrical force, the repulsion between them, increases as the square of the distance. So as they get closer and closer, that force gets bigger and bigger until there's an absolutely tremendous repulsive force trying to prevent them from joining together. So in order to get these two protons to fuse, they have to be going incredibly quickly. You can think of it a bit like running up a very steep slided ramp. And the place in the universe astronomers and physicists realized that was hot enough, where these protons would be moving up fast enough, was inside stars. So we now know that the sun, for example, is, its power comes from the fusion of hydrogen into helium. Um, and at the end of its life, eventually, when the hydrogen, the core of the sun, runs out in about five billion years, when the fuel source of the sun is exhausted, it will, the center will contract and heat up even more, and then helium will start to fuse together to make carbon. And when this happens, the sun will swell to a red giant, engulfing the earth and scorching everything, at least if we haven't already done it ourselves by then. Um, and finally, at the end of its life, once the, once, the, once the core has been turned mostly into carbon and oxygen, it will waft its outer layers out into space. And what you end up with something like this, this is a planetary nebula, it's, um, this is actually the Bowtie Nebula, is the a sort of vision of our own solar system five or six billion years in the future. At the center of this is a, a white dwarf, which is a cold, dead, well, not cold, actually quite hot, but hot, dead husk of the star that was there at the beginning, which is mostly made of carbon and oxygen. And then around it, you have clouds of carbon, helium, and hydrogen that were wafted away in the star's atmosphere. And it's these kinds of stars that are responsible, stars like our own sun, for making the, the carbon in our apple pie, and indeed in all of us. So we are all made of bits of stars, or as Carl Sagan said, we are made of star stuff, um, which is a, a, lovely, a lovely thing. And we, I say it's, a, it's a kind of a familiar fact. We all know this, I guess. But it, it, and it, I think when it was discovered in the 60s and 50s and 60s, it was a really magical idea. It's almost become too familiar that we forget about it. So it's worth remembering. That is really an extraordinary thing. So that's the carbon. But actually, it's interesting, if you want to know where oxygen comes from, it doesn't actually come from sunlight stars. And the reason is that although sunlight stars at the end of their lives will make oxygen, it stays locked up in this white dwarf, this very small dead remnant at the from the center of the star. The oxygen or apple pie actually comes from much more violent processes. So for stars much bigger than our sun, say Betelgeuse, which is a star in Orion, which is about 10 to 20 times heavier than the sun, when much heavier stars, when they get to the end of their lives, something much more dramatic happens, which is once the core is being turned into carbon and oxygen, the core keeps collapsing. And that's because the weight of the gravity of the star allows it to collapse and heat up more. And then you start burning carbon into heavier elements like silicon, and eventually you get all the way to iron and nickel. 
And when this happens, the star's core runs out of energy, and you get this awesome explosion known as a supernova, which will then spread a huge range of different chemical elements out into space. And in particular, this is where the oxygen in our apple pie comes from. When I was researching this book, um, I had the great opportunity to visit various uh, observa observatories and experiments around the world. In particular, one of the most memorable ones was visiting this place. This is Apache Point Observatory, 3,000 meters up a, me a mountain in New Mexico. What you can see here is the Sloan Telescope opening up uh, for a night of scargazing. It's this incredible sunset backdrop. I have to say, I came away from this trip thinking I've picked the wrong area of science. Like my, most of uh, when I was a PhD student, my office was in. Um, and I have to be careful what I say because my boss is here. But my office was in a in a windowless room uh, underneath the men's first floor toilets, um, which frequently leaked. And so the feeling of water dripping unexpectedly onto my head still gives me sort of panic attacks. Um, but, uh, but this is really science as it's most romantic, this incredible sunset. But um, what, the, what the Sloan Telescope does, it has connected to it uh, into a, a, spectro a spectrometer, which analyzes the stars from across the Milky Way galaxy in order to unravel the cosmic history of the chemical elements. And, and actually... This story, although we've known the rough outline of this story about where the elements come from inside stars since about the 1950s, um, there are still parts of it that aren't yet fully, fully filled in, and we're still learning more and more uh, as time goes by. Um, one of the lovely things I came across when I was writing this book was, um, was this periodic table. So this is a periodic table produced by Jennifer Johnson, who is an astrophysicist at Ohio State University. And what you can see is a familiar periodic table, but the colors tell you where all the different chemical elements come from. So for example, if we take carbon, you can see that carbon mostly is shaded in yellow, which means it comes from dying low-mass stars. So that's like our sun. Our sun is quite a small star by cosmic standards. And then if we look at oxygen, say, well, that comes mostly, as I said, from uh, exploding massive stars, these supernova explosions. But one of the interesting things that's happened recently in, in this area, what's called stellar nucleosynthesis, which is essentially the cooking of, of elements inside stars, people have realized that some of the story wasn't quite right. So it was thought for a lot of the latter half of the 20th century that the very heavy elements like gold and platinum were me also made inside supernova explosions. But thanks to a very exciting discovery that was made in 2017 um, by an observatory called LIGO in the United States, we now think they actually come from an even more extraordinary place, which is from the collisions of neutron stars. A neutron star is the uh, possible end product of a supernova. It's an even denser, basically, dead husk made entirely of neutrons from the center of a supernova explosion. And in 2017, LIGO, which is a gravitational wave observatory, detected ripples in space-time produced by the collisions between two neutron stars in a very, very distant part of the universe. And, it was the and they alerted various optical telescopes around the world, who then swung and pointed at the point of the sky where this signal had come from. And what they detected was the telltale characteristic signature of huge quantities of gold being made. I think it was something like 30 solid gold Earth's worth of gold was produced in this collision. Um, but I should add, before you get on the phone to Elon Musk with a get-rich-quick scheme, if you flooded the Earth market with that much gold, the value would plummet, so don't, don't bother. It's also very far away. Um, but, um, I mean, and admittedly, I should also say, I suppose, that there isn't actually gold in an apple pie, um, but it could be one of those fancy ones with some gold leaf on top, so there you go. But anyways, the, the point really is, this story is, is not a done deal, and there's still really exciting science being done in this area. So then we have, this, we, we have another question, then, which is, if we look at the composition of the universe, this is a pie chart that represents what the universe is made from in terms of the different chemical elements. The vast majority of it, about 73%, is hydrogen, 
25% of it is helium, and then the rest, about 1.5% or so, a bit, just under 2%, is everything else. So all the, all the other elements apart from helium. And that's a tiny fraction. So that's all the sort of solid material, basically, that makes up the Earth and everything else. Now, there's this rather peculiar thing, though. If you look at there's a huge amount of helium, but we know that helium is made inside stars, and all this stuff is also made inside stars. So why is there so much helium and so little of everything else? And this is a question that puzzled astrophysicists uh, in the 1950s and 60s. And it was eventually realized that actually stars are not the only cosmic oven that cooks the chemical elements. There's another one, and that other one is the Big Bang itself. So the universe began, as I'm sure you will know, about 13.8 billion years ago in this awesome expansion and explosion of space and time and energy. And if you go back far enough uh, to the first few minutes of the universe's history, the temperatures were incredibly high. And at this time, the universe was mostly made of protons and neutrons that were just flying about freely in this boiling plasma. But for after about a minute or so after the Big Bang, for about 15 minutes, the, basically all the helium in the universe was cooked. So that's where the helium really comes from. It doesn't come from stars. The stars have contributed a bit, but most of it was made in this nuclear fireball at the very, very beginning of the universe. And this is actually one of the big triumphs of the Big Bang theory. One of the strongest pieces of evidence we have for the Big Bang is the fact that if you take what we assume about the beginning of the universe, which was there was roughly an equal number of protons and neutrons, you work out the temperatures and densities, and you calculate how much helium should be made, you get pretty much exactly what we observe in the night sky. And this, is, this really supports the idea that the universe really did be, begin with a Big Bang. So this is the reaction that took place, nuclear fusion of protons and neutrons to make helium. Okay, we can keep going, though. So we've got quite a long way now. We've figured out where helium and all the other chemical elements come from. But because, we're, because I'm a physicist, you're sort of bloody-minded, and you keep saying, why? So what, what, happened, what happened before this? What was the, the previous step? Where did the protons and neutrons, the ingredients that make up uh, all the other elements, ultimately come from? Well, in the 1960s, experiments were done, uh, particularly using a large particle accelerator called the Stanford Linear Accelerator, uh, just based outside uh, San Francisco. And what the linear accelerator did was it was essentially a three-kilometer electron gun. It fired electrons very, very close to the speed of light at protons and neutrons. And then they used big detectors to see what angles the electrons come bouncing off the protons and neutrons. And what they found is the angles that the electrons came off at suggested that the existence of smaller objects inside protons and neutrons. The protons and neutrons were not fundamental. They actually had substructure, and they're made of particles called quarks. Um, and there are two types of quarks that are important. There's the, the up quark. They have a char an electric charge of plus two-thirds. Quarks are a bit odd. They have a fractional electric charge, unlike electrons. And then the down quark, which has a charge of minus one-third. So if protons and neutrons, the same logic applies. If protons and neutrons are made of quarks, then that suggests that perhaps they were assembled from quarks. And indeed, remarkably, in fact, there are experiments going on uh, right now on Earth that recreate the conditions when protons and neutrons formed in the very early universe. So we're now talking about conditions that existed in the universe about a millionth of a second after the Big Bang, when the universe had a temperature in the trillions of degrees, so incredibly high temperatures. And there's an extraordinary experiment uh, based actually just outside New York on Long Island at Brookhaven called the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider. This is a big particle accelerator. And what they do is they fire nuclei of atoms, quite often gold atoms. They whiz them around in a circle. They smash them into each other. And when these gold atoms collide, 
they briefly recreate temperatures and densities that haven't been seen in the universe since about a millionth of a second after the Big Bang, reaching temperatures of trillions of degrees. And under these temperatures, the protons and neutrons get so hot that they effectively melt. So they melt, and what you end up with is this very strange sort of uh, incredibly, uh, it's a super fluid, super hot soup made of free quarks and gluons called a quark-gluon plasma. And when I was researching the book, I went to Brookhaven, and one of the things that's really interesting is that they're currently targeting, there's a, there's a phase transition that happened in the early universe. This is a phase transition very similar to, say, water freezing into ice, where this quark-gluon soup, this super-hot soup, condensed to form protons and neutrons, and they're getting very close to understanding that phase transition. So we have a, we're hopefully very soon hone in on the moment that protons and neutrons formed in the early universe in experiments here on Earth, which is pretty extraordinary. So let's see where we are. So we've, we've got to this point. We have now three basic building blocks, three particles that make up all the matter, or at least all the visible matter in the universe. The electron, the up quark, and the down quark. And with these three things, you can make anything you like. You can make an apple pie, you can make a human being, you can make a supernova. And that's amazing, really, when you think about it, that all the complexity in the world can be reduced to this incredible simplicity. But we're going to do the same thing now. Okay, where do these guys come from? Where do, why do we have these three particles? Well, it may surprise you to know, given that I'm a particle physicist and the subject's called particle physics, that we don't actually think of particles as being the fundamental building blocks of the universe. They're not actually thought to be truly fundamental. They're manifestations of something even deeper, something more fundamental. And these are rather strange objects called quantum fields. So uh, it sounds like a slightly scary word, but you're probably you're, you're very familiar with the idea of a field, I'm sure. So a lot of work was done defining the idea of a field in, in this building by Michael Faraday in the 19th century. And Faraday did lots of experiments with coils of wire and magnets. And if you've ever held a magnet, say, say you take two magnets and you push their north poles together, you can feel this repulsion, this, uh, this physical thing, and you can almost feel like you're tracing out the outline of some real tangible object. What you're feeling there is a magnetic field. It's invisible, but it has a real physical presence. And quantum, the, the magnetic field is just one example of these types of field. And in modern particle physics, we actually think of every particle, the electron, the various quarks, all the other particles, as being little disturbances, little vibrations in these underlying fields. So these fields are everywhere. So there is an electron field, for example. This ele the electron field is throughout this room, and every electron in your body is a little knot of energy, a little vibration, a ripple, moving about in this electron field, which rather, which rather beautifully, or scarily, depending on how you want to look at it, means that you're all we are all connected to each other. We're all part of the same underlying fluid-like substance that fills the whole universe. And the same thing goes for the quarks and for everything else. So once you have this view of particles, well... In order to create a particle, all you have to do is put some energy into a quantum field, make a little ripple, and you've made a particle. You can make an electron, you can make a quark. So we now have a mechanism, at least, by which you can start to think about how you make the basic building blocks that make up our universe. And our best description of how all these quantum fields behave and their associated particles is uh, encapsulated in this theory known as the standard model of particle physics, which is an incredibly boring name for one of the most exciting and important intellectual discoveries of human beings have ever made, I think. And the standard model is a theory of these quantum fields, and it describes, for example, includes in it the up quark and the down quark and the electron that makes up ordinary matter. It also includes a bunch of other particles, which I won't really get into. We don't really understand why these things exist, but we just see that we can make them in experiments. There are also 
fields associated with the various forces of nature. You have the photon, which is associated with the electromagnetic force, the force that holds atoms together, the force that's responsible for light, for electricity and magnetism. Um, there are all, and there are particles called gluons, which are associated with the strong force, which binds quarks together inside protons and neutrons. And then you also have these rather odd things called W and Z bosons, which are the quantum fields of the weak force, which is a force responsible for causing particles to decay, to transform from one type into another. And finally, and perhaps most famously of the lot, is the Higgs boson, uh, which I'll talk about a bit more in a, in a second. So... The standard model is a fantastically successful theory. It describes all the visible matter that we can see in the universe with absolutely stunning accuracy. And pretty much there is no experiment in existence that has uh, contradicted its predictions. It's probably the most successful scientific theory ever written down. Uh, it's the closest we've come really to a theory of everything. But we know this theory must be incomplete. And in the second half of the talk, I will tell you why we think it must be incomplete. So just as a little, a little health warning, we are now moving off the edge of the known world into the unknown. So here there'd be monsters. In other words, um, we're, we're getting to a point where our understanding is partial and speculation sort of comes in. And this is where all the big questions of modern physics uh, really live and where a lot of the exciting work is currently being done. So with that caveat aside, so we got to this point, we have these basic ingredients of our universe, and we have this beautiful theory that describes how they behave, how they interact. But as we go back further in the history of the universe, beyond the point when protons and neutrons form, we start to find that there are places where our recipe for matter has gaps in it, where there are holes, things that we don't understand. And one of the biggest holes is to do with something called antimatter. So antimatter is a stuff beloved of science fiction writers. Um, you may have encountered antimatter, for example, in the terrible novel uh, Angels and Demons by Dan Brown, where some, uh, some nefarious organization steals some antimatter from CERN in order to blow up the Vatican. Um, <laughs> for no reasons that aren't really explained particularly well. Um, so just as, there is actually an experiment at CERN called Alpha where they do actually make antimatter. They make atoms of anti-hydrogen and they study it in the laboratory. And I went to visit Alpha when I was researching the book and Jeffrey Hankst, who is the... Um, the spokesperson of Alpha, basically the head of the experiment, pointed out that the cost of the amount of antimatter you would need to blow up the Vatican is so huge that it would be much more cost efficient to pay a team of builders to dismantle the Vatican by hand, brick by brick. So, and it would also take basically the age of the universe to make enough antimatter to do it in the first place. So we're not going to use antimatter to do anything nefarious, I can, I can promise you that. But what is antimatter? I should probably explain that. So Every particle that we, every matter particle that we know about in the standard model, which are these 12 things, there are six quarks and six things called leptons, and the, the electron is one of these, these leptons, has a kind of mirror image, which has exactly the same properties, the same mass, the same interactions with the different forces, but they have opposite charges. So there is an anti-version of the electron. The electron is negatively charged, called the positron, or the anti-electron, which is positively charged, there's a version of the up quark called the up antiquark, which instead of being positively charged is negatively charged. Now, in the standard model, whenever we create a particle of matter, you also create a particle of antimatter. So at the Large Hadron Collider, when you smash protons into each other, for example, you make particles and antiparticles. And if you count up all the particles that you put into a reaction, and then the number of particles minus the number of antiparticles you get at the end, those two numbers will always be the same. In other words, you can't make more matter than antimatter. 
Now, this is a bit of a problem, because if we go back and think about the very earliest moments of our universe, in the very early universe, the universe had incredibly high temperatures, and matter and antimatter were being created continuously in this sort of seething, broiling plasma. Um, and because of this symmetry between matter and antimatter, we would have expected equal numbers of particles and antiparticles to be present at any one time. So you then let the clock run forward a bit more, and about a millionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe has expanded enough that it cools down, that there's no longer enough energy to keep making particles and antiparticles. And what then happens is an event that Frank Close calls the Great Annihilation, which sounds exciting. Um, so this is basically when all the matter and antimatter in the universe meet up, and they annihilate each other. So when matter and antimatter meet, they wipe each other out, releasing light and various other forms of radiation. So this suggests that if our understanding of antimatter is correct, that we should not be here. That after, very shortly after the Big Bang, everything should have been wiped out, and we would live in a cold, dark, lifeless universe with just a few photons coasting through the infinite blackness. But of course, we know the universe is full of stuff. So the fact that the universe is full of stuff, the fact that we are here, the fact that apple pies are here, tells us that there is something wrong about our understanding of antimatter, or there is something missing. So this is one of the big questions we have to answer. How did matter survive the Big Bang? There's another question too. So this is related to um, the Higgs boson. So I should explain to you what Higgs boson is. So um, the Higgs boson is really evidence for the existence of something called the Higgs field. Like all the other particles that we know about, the Higgs boson is a little ripple in an underlying quantum field, and that quantum field is called the Higgs field. And the reason that we, well, the reason that theorists believed the Higgs field existed was when the standard model was being assembled in the 1960s and 70s, they found that if you gave mass to the particles in the standard model, the theory broke down. It gave you nonsensical answers. In other words, the, the, the mathematics, the theory seemed to be suggesting that if particles had mass, then the theory was inconsistent. It, uh, but of course, we know electrons, for example, have mass. We know a lot of the particles in the table I showed you have mass. And the solution to this problem, which was uh, discovered by Peter Higgs and actually about five other theorists around the same time, was that, well, let us actually assume that, it, that particles in the standard model actually don't have a mass. They're massless but they get their mass from somewhere else. And the somewhere else that they get their mass from is this thing called the Higgs field. Now, there's been various competitions run to try to come up with a good explanation of how this works, and none of them are really very good. Um, so I'll give one that's sort of, and they're all wrong in various different ways, but I'll give one that's sort of, at least you can get your head around and isn't totally misleading. You can kind of think of the Higgs field as a bit like molasses or sort of honey, like some kind of thick, gloopy substance. And the idea is that as electrons move through this Higgs field, say, take electrons for example, they get slowed down and they get given the, uh, the property of mass through their interaction with this gloopy, Higgsy fluid. Now, that's wrong, but that's, you can, if you can hang on to that idea, that, that's sort of what's going on, very, very roughly. Now, the other thing that's unique about the Higgs field is that unlike all the other quantum fields that we know about, it has a non-zero value. So what I mean by that, if, if we were to go into a very, very distant part of space, far away from any sources of radiation, and were to sort of close it off, remove, out, remove all the atoms, remove all the particles, and then study the quantum fields that are left, we would find that all the quantum fields in nature had more or less zero energy in them. They had a zero value, apart from some little quantum jitters. The Higgs field is different. It has a fixed value throughout all of space. And it's this fixed value that is responsible for giving the mass to the other particles. So the fact it has this non-zero value is crucial. 
And in fact, the value that Higgs field takes uh, is, it completely determines the properties of all the other particles. And if you change the, the strength of the Higgs field, you change the way the universe is, in essence. Now, we believe that about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the Higgs field switched on. So it, before about a trillionth of a second, it was off. It was, had a value of zero. Particles had no mass. They all flew around at the speed of light. And then about a trillionth of a second in, the Higgs field switched on for the first time and acquired its modern value, and particles took on the properties that they, they have today. But the thing that's very curious is that if you do a calculation and figure out what the likely values of the Higgs field ought to have been, you get two rather disturbing results. The first possibility is that the Higgs field is fully on. It's, like a, it's almost like a switch. It acquires a value of 10 billion billion giga electron volts. This is what we call the Planck energy. It's the energy at which we believe gravity uh, becomes a quantum mechanical phenomenon. It's the sort of upper limit of energy that we can really imagine. So it's basically as far as you can go. Now, if the Higgs field had this enormous value, it would be very, very bad. Because what this would mean is that every particle would become so massive that ordinary matter would just collapse into a black hole. We wouldn't be here. The universe would be filled with black holes and not much else. It wouldn't be a very nice place to, to live. The other possibility is that it goes off. The Higgs field just remains off, stays at zero. And if that happens, that's also very bad. Because if the Higgs field is off, then particles don't have mass. And among other rather unpleasant consequences of this is that electrons don't have mass. They don't bind to atoms. And there's therefore no structure. There's no, if there's no atoms, then there's no wobbly, flesh-colored things made of atoms either. So we, we don't exist. These are the, seem to be the only two probable possibilities. But because of what we've experiments that we've done uh, at CERN and other places, we know now that the Higgs field has a value not of 10 billion billion or of zero, but of 246 giga electron volts, which is very odd. It's a very, very long way away from this number, but it's also not zero. And the thing that's really fishy is that it turns out that if you change this number by even a little bit, very quickly the universe becomes uninhabitable. And the only way to get this number to come out uh, successfully is to effectively gerrymander the standard model or fiddle about with all of the sort of properties of, of the particles, the various constants of nature, until you find one particular setting where the Higgs field has this lovely Goldilocks value where we can exist. Now, this looks very suspicious, and, and physicists really don't like this very much because it sort of suggests that some cosmic tinker has set everything up in just the right way. We would like an explanation of why we have this very peculiar number that is not 10 billion billion and not zero either. So we have our second question. Why didn't the Higgs field kill us? So these are the two, two of the big gaps in the current attempts to understand the origins of matter. And they're two of the big questions that motivated the construction of the largest scientific instrument that's ever been built by the human race. This, this is the Large Hadron Collider, 27 kilometers in circumference. What happens is, the, what the LHC does is really kind of simple and brutal. Somewhere over here at CERN, there is an ordinary bottle of hydrogen gas. The gas is extracted. It's put into a little box, which rips the electrons off the protons. And the protons are then sent through a series of accelerators and then injected into the LHC. And the LHC accelerates them to 99.999999% of the speed of light. And then they're smashed into each other inside four big uh, detectors that are also known as experiments. These are marked around the route. So LHCB, this is the one that, that I work on over by the airport. And the reason we do this is because we want to understand 
we want to try to find answers to some of these questions. So this gives you an, an idea of what these detectors look like. This is a photograph of uh, CMS, which stands for Compact Muon Solenoid Experiment. Um, now, this is a very strange use of the word compact. Given this thing is 15 meters high, weighs about 14,000 tons, and you can make two Eiffel Towers out of the iron it contains. So this is a big thing. So what happens when two protons collide with each other, the, the reason we accelerate them is because we want to give them huge amounts of energy. And when they collide, the energy they're carrying is converted into new particles. So the LHC doesn't smash atoms to bits as such, although it does smash protons to bits. But a lot of what you're seeing here is not what was inside the proton. It's stuff that's being made. You're knocking these quantum fields that are always there. You're creating new particles. And they come flying out from the collisions. You can see hundreds of particles being produced. And the job of people like me is to scour through these collisions, analyze the data, and try to find evidence of new particles, new forces of nature, new phenomena that might help to explain, for example, why there is matter in the universe and it wasn't all annihilated with antimatter, or in particular, why the Higgs field has this weird peculiar value. Now, the first great triumph of the LHC took place on the 4th of July 2012, what became known at CERN as Higgs Dependence Day. So this was the day that the announced uh, that Atlas and CMS, two, the two big general purpose experiments, announced the discovery of the Higgs boson, this ripple in the Higgs field that had been predicted back in 1964. This was a tremendously exciting day, a huge achievement. Um, and the hope was that soon after, this discovery, we were going to start to see evidence of new particles, new phenomena that would help address some of these big open questions. In some ways, the discovery of the Higgs was a sort of confirmation of the standard model, which has been around in its current form more or less since the 70s. What we really then wanted to know was what comes next, what answers the, the what fills these gaps in our, in our current understanding. But if you followed the news from the LHC over the last decade or so, you'll know that the basic story is this, we haven't seen anything, nothing new. There'd be lots of, now I don't want to pretend, that, I don't want to say that there's not been great stuff going on. Lots of interesting physics has been done. We understand the standard model far better than we did before. New states, new states involving quarks have been discovered, particularly by the experiment that I'm a member of. So there's lots of great stuff that's happened. The Higgs boson itself has been studied and understood. But in terms of the new things, super particles, micro black holes, all kinds of exotic objects that we might have seen, we haven't seen them so far. And I think if you speak to particle physicists and they're feeling sort of candid, they'll probably say this has been a little bit worrying, a little anxious-making. Um, but there has been, just in, very recently, uh, the first signs of possibly, and I should say that this is very possibly in capital letters, the signs that we might be about to discover something new. And this, these results come from the LHCB experiment. So this is an experiment that I'm a member of. I'm one of 1,400 people that work on this instrument. And LHCB, um, the B in LHCB stands for beauty. And beauty refers to one of the six quarks in the standard model. And you'll see, actually, it's labeled bottom quark, not beauty, confusingly. Um, now the reason for this is when the bottom quark and its partner, the top quark, were discovered, there was an effort to call them truth and beauty, sounding rather poetic. But physicists went for the more prosaic top and bottom. But um, on LHCB, we'd rather be beauty physicists than bottom physicists. So it's, for us, it's beauty. <laughs> And these particles are really interesting to, to study, because if you study them in, in detail, then you can get evidence of the existence of, for example, new forces of nature, new particles that we haven't seen before. Now, the LHC is a great place to study bottoms. You get billions of bottoms made every year in the collisions. This is an example of one of the collisions produced by LHCB. And the detector allows you to reconstruct 
uh, the tracks of the various particles and see if you made a, a beauty quark somewhere back here at the collision point. These beauty quarks, I should say, they don't live for very long. So they only live for about one and a half trillionths of a second, and then they very quickly decay into other things. So you never actually see the beauty quarks directly. You see the things that they turn into, and those are the things that hit your experiment. Um, so the, the reason these things are interesting, as I said, is if you make precise measurements of them, you can get indirect evidence for the existence of new phenomena. And the way this works is a bit like this. So here's our beauty quark. Now, as I said, it doesn't live very long. It lives about a trillionth of a second, and it then decays. Let's say it decays into a bunch of other particles in the standard model. Well, we know how this happens in the standard model. It happens through the other quantum fields that we know about. So because the standard model is very well understood, you can make a prediction using the standard model of how often a given decay ought to happen, for example. Now, the trick is that let's say that there's a new force of nature, a fifth force of nature. If beauty quarks interact with this fifth force, that fifth force can provide an alternative route for this decay to happen. So if you make your very precise prediction with the standard model, then you make a very precise measurement, you compare them, and you find that they're different, that difference can be indirect evidence that there's a new quantum field, possibly a new force, that's changing how these beauty quarks behave. So that's the game we play. Precise prediction, precise measurement, compare them, and if they disagree, that could be the sign of something exciting. So what my colleagues at LHCB have done recently is a series of measurements that look at processes a bit like this. So this is a decay of the beauty quark, where it turns into something called a strange quark, which is a, basically a slightly lighter version of the same thing, and an electron and an anti-electron. And what my colleagues did is they measured this process, and they compared it to a very similar related process, where instead of having electrons, you have particles called muons. Uh, apologies for all the jargon that's flying about, but muons are, in essence, copies of the electron. They're very, very similar. The only difference is that they have a larger mass and they're unstable, but otherwise they're identical to electrons in every way. And because they're identical to electrons in every way, the forces in the standard model treat muons and electrons the same. So if you compare how often a beauty quark decays into an electron and how often it decays into muons, these two processes should happen at exactly the same rate. But that isn't what my colleagues have seen. What, uh, since about 2014, we've been getting increasing evidence that the muon decay happens less often than the standard model predicts. Now, these results still come with all of these measurements come with uncertainties, which means we only know the rate of these decays within certain precision. And for at least for a few years, these sort of results, they're kind of intriguing. They were a little bit away from the standard model prediction. But as we've added more data, the thing that's really exciting is that these anomalies, these deviations have got bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger as our measurement has got more and more precise. And this culminated in a very exciting day uh, back on the 23rd of March this year. If you follow the, the science news, you may have seen some headlines. Particle physics briefly re-emerged into the, sort of the public domain after the discovery of the Higgs with stories like this. So what happened on this day was an update of this measurement was made using all the data that's currently been recorded by LHCB. And this deviation crossed a slightly arbitrary but nonetheless important threshold, which basically means there is now about a one in a thousand chance of getting a deviation like this just because of random statistics. So you've just been a bit unlucky, a bit like tossing lots of heads in a row on a coin, for example. So this, is, and this, is, this caused enormous excitement. And this, if this is real, if this effect is real and not a statistical blip, um, then it could be the first evidence we've ever seen of a new force of nature beyond the standard model, something that lies outside our current understanding. 
Um, and this, is, this, would be such a, this would be a huge deal because the standard model, as I said, has existed in its current form more or less since the 1970s. And this would be the first really genuinely new thing we've seen in particle physics since then. Then something even more remarkable happened. About two or three weeks later, on the 7th of April, another big announcement was made from a completely different experiment. This is an experiment at Fermilab in the United States called the muon G-2 experiment. Um, and what they announced is they, again, had seen evidence potentially for, you'll see, a new force of nature. Um, so sort of discover monumental discoveries seem to be turning up like buses. So this is a bit, a bit strange. They all arrived at once. Um, but what this experiment does, uh, it's based at, just at Fermilab just outside Chicago, is it measures the pr uh, particular property of the, the muons. This is the heavy version of the electron. In particular, it measures its magnetic field. The muon behaves a bit like a little bar magnet. It has its own magnetic field. And again, using the standard model, you can predict how strong the muon's magnetic field ought to be. And then if you do a very clever experiment like they did at Fermilab, you can also make a very precise measurement of the magnetic field of the muon. And again, what they found is that their measurement didn't agree with the standard model prediction. And it didn't agree by an even larger factor. In fact, it didn't agree to the extent that there's about a 1 in 40,000 chance of this one being a statistical blip. So again, it's not yet at the point where we can say for sure, definitively, that we're seeing signs of new physics. But I think these two results in particular are the most promising evidence we've seen of something really genuinely new for a very, very long time. And they could well be connected to these questions. How did matter survive the Big Bang? Why didn't the Higgs field kill us? Or they might have nothing to do with them. They might be, they might be answering questions we haven't even thought to ask yet, or they may be related to some of the other big outstanding problems in physics. But if we are really seeing the signs of something new, then it will surely tell us a lot more about the world we live in, and it could well help us unravel some of these questions. So there are definitely gaps in our recipe for our apple pie, but there's, a, there's a, at least a chance that in the next few years we're going to start to fill in some more of those gaps. So I'm just going to go finish uh, by going even further back now. So we kind of, I've been discussing here, these are sort of the, the physics that existed around about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. But let's go back even further. Let's say how far back can we go ultimately? And what happened at the moment of the Big Bang? So if we really want to make an apple pie from scratch, we need in principle to understand the very first moments of the universe. So this is a, a diagram of the cosmic history of the universe with the Big Bang over here and apple pies over here. Um, it's not usually how it's presented, I should add. But um, so what, what we can see, as we, as we go backwards in time through the history of the universe, the universe, gets, is, is, the universe is expanding. So as we go back in time, it gets smaller. We go back and back and back. Eventually, there are no stars. They haven't formed yet. Uh, we go back and then atoms haven't, atoms haven't yet formed. We enter the fireball of the Big Bang. And then a tiny moment after the Big Bang, and I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's something like 10 billionths of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, after the Big Bang, this process known as cosmic inflation took place. So this was a period right at the very beginning of the universe where the universe expanded exponentially. Now, thanks to the last few years, we're probably all familiar, more familiar with the idea of exponential growth than we used to be. Um, this basically means it expanded very, very quickly. Um, to give you a sense of how quickly it expanded, uh, if you to take, in, the, in this very short period of time, fraction and fraction of a billionth of a second, the universe grew in size, so if you were to take a, a full stop at the end of a sentence and blow it up by the same amount, it would end up 100 times bigger than the Milky Way galaxy. So the universe underwent this incredibly rapid period of expansion, and 
Well, at least we believe it did. And the, and the reason we believe this, or well, cosmologists, I should say, believe this, is if you look out at the universe at very, very large distances, if you look over there, say, if you get a telescope and look as far as you can in that direction, then you look as far as you can in that direction, those two bits of the sky look eerily similar. They have the same temperature, the same density, the same amount of stuff. But according to the classic Big Bang theory, these two bits of the sky, these two places, were never in contact with each other. So how on earth are they the same? How do they know uh, to be the same temperature and density? Well, the answer is they were all actually once at the same place, and then they got spread apart by this incredibly rapid expansion called inflation. And ultimately, inflation is where we believe the, the matter that makes up our universe came from. So this very first moment, there's huge amounts of energy in something called the inflaton field, which is another field. And this is the field that's driving this incredibly rapid expansion. And then what happens is as inflation switches off, inflation basically comes to an end, and all this energy in the inflaton field gets dumped into the other quantum fields that we know about in the standard model. And you get electrons and quarks, neutrinos and Higgs bosons and all other kinds of things. So this is the moment really when matter gets created. This is, and this is actually as far back as we can even go in principle. Because if inflation is right, basically what it means is if we want to go back any earlier, let's imagine there are events before inflation where we'll never see them because any information from that earlier time would have been carried way out of sight by this incredibly rapid expansion of the universe. So inflation really is, if it's right, that's the end of the story. That's as far as we can go. There's a hard limit on what we can know. So the question is, you know, did inflation happen? Well. There's, there's lots of evidence that it did. Um, it, it explains properties, it explains lots of properties of the universe. For example, the fact that it looks the same in every direction. It also explains the fact that there is structure in the universe. One of the really amazing things that inflation says is that when you look out in space, you see these structures, you see galaxies, and you see, you see that galaxies are arranged in what are called filaments, so these kind of like web-like structures that thread the universe made up of galaxies that kind of look a bit like a spider's web. And it's believed that these structures ultimately came from quantum fluctuations down at scales far, far smaller than an atom. So just little quantum jitters that got blown up by inflation to the size of the entire sky. And these little quantum jitters were the seeds of all the structure we see around us. So these, are the, these quantum jitters caused the formation of galaxies and the large-scale structure of the universe. So there's lots of indirect evidence that inflation happened. But the question is, how, can we ever directly know that it happened? Well, one of the problems is that if you go back to about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, times earlier than that, the whole universe was so hot that it was filled with this fireball. It was essentially like the sun. And that meant light couldn't travel. If you try and send a particle of light through that fireball, it bounces off atoms and it doesn't get anywhere. And so we can only look back to about 380,000 years after the Big Bang with optical telescopes. And if you do that, this is what you see. This is called the cosmic microwave background, which is the oldest light in the universe. It's the faint microwave remnant of the light that existed around this time when the universe was filled with a fireball. And this kind of acts like a firewall. It's a barrier. We can't look through this. You go back there, you can't see any further. But just in the last few years, we now actually have a brand new way of looking at the universe. And this new way of looking at the universe might allow us to penetrate the cosmic microwave background and look right back to the moment of inflation. And you do this using things called gravitational waves. 
So this is a, a photograph of an instrument called LIGO, uh, which is a very strange observatory. It's actually it's an observatory that studies the universe, just like any telescope, but it's made up of two uh, parallel three-kilometer arms which fire laser beams back and forward. Um, I went to visit this instrument when I was researching the book. It's in this pine forest in southern Louisiana. Uh, there's another instrument up in Washington as well. And what this instrument essentially does is it listens for vibrations in the fabric of space and time itself. So these are ripples in space-time created by incredibly violent processes in the distant universe. And in 2015, after decades of work, decades of refining their instruments, LIGO picked up the first sign of gravitational wave, and it was produced by two black holes uh, billions of light years away and in the past, that collided with each other. And as these two black holes spiraled around each other and merged, they, create these, they created these ripples in space-time that traveled out and were eventually picked up by the LIGO instrument. Now, inflation would have done something to space-time very like these black holes. Inflation was incredibly violent. So if inflation happened, it would have roiled space-time. It would have sent these ripples cascading out through the universe. Now, today, these ripples would be incredibly faint. Uh, far, far too faint for LIGO to pick them up. But in the future, there are experiments planned uh, at the South Pole, high in the Atacama Desert, and even observatories orbiting up in space that may be able to pick up the gravitational waves left over from the very earliest moments of the universe. And if we were to get evidence of that, it would really complete the recipe. That would tell us ultimately where the, the physical stuff in our apple pie came from. So we've reached the end of the story. So... I suppose to summarize to say, um, one of the things I, I got from writing this book is an incredible appreciation over hundreds of years how different people, chemists, physicists, astronomers, all working on different parts of the puzzle, ultimately we're actually all working on the same puzzle, which is where does stuff come from and why are we here? And it, it, this is a story that excited me hugely as a teenager. It's why I became a scientist, and it's a story that I, I hope I've tried to share some of the excitement with you tonight, and I hope you enjoy the book if indeed you do pick it up. But uh, thank you very much for your attention. It's been lovely talking to you. Uh, well, thank you so much, Harry. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm sure lots of people in the audience have uh, got questions, but while you're preparing your question, there's a question from Martin from Mayfair, um, <laughs> who'd like to know, how did the LIGO detector know that it was two neutron stars rather than a black hole colliding? And have they detected any other things colliding that have sent out ripples? Yeah, so I should say I'm not an expert in this stuff at all. <laughs> well, that's um, what happens when you I, I think, it's, so what, what they look for, I mean, just to say a bit more about LIGO, it, what they, now what, what, so I met the, the head of the LIGO lab at Livingston, and he, what he said to me is that the, the distances they're measuring are smaller than the size of it. They're measuring, basically what they, these laser beams, what they do is they measure shifts in the length of the arms caused by these gravitational waves. And they're measuring shifts that are smaller than a proton. So this is unbelievably, fantastically tiny distances. I think he described it as like the private space enjoyed by two quarks. So the fact <laughs> these instruments work at all is amazing. And actually, when I was there, I walked in. He showed me around the control room. I went into the control room. And just as we walked in, everyone got up and was looking very excited. And they said, well, we've just lost Locke. What that meant was that there'd been an earthquake in Indonesia. <laughs> and the seismic waves from that earthquake had disrupted and sent all their optics out of alignment. So they got to correct for all balance against all these other vibrations in the Earth and did, in order to detect these incredibly fine 
shift, which is amazing. So, but what they essentially do is they look at this signal they get out of the instrument and they search for particular waveforms. I think they basically have templates. So they kind of a black hole collision has a certain ripple shape. Neutron stars have a different shape. So I think it was basically from the shape of these waveforms. And the thing that was then very convincing is when they when they've discovered the um, when they found this signal, they sent out basically an embargoed alert to a load of optical observatories that they had connections with. And they then looked at the sky and they saw an electromagnetic glow. So they saw light effectively created. Because when black holes collide, they don't create light. They just go and they create lots of gravitational waves. But when neutron, neutron stars are incredibly hard, dense objects, when they smash into each other, they get a lot of light, a lot of heat. And, and that's what they picked up. So I think that, that's why they're pretty sure that is indeed what they saw. Oh, fantastic. Uh, is anyone uh, here? Uh, gentleman at the back? So I'll just repeat that uh, for anyone watching. I mean, the question was about were the laws of nature the same all the way right back to the start of the Big Bang? It sort of depends a bit what you mean by a law of nature. But yes, the laws of, as far as we know, the laws of nature haven't changed. So the laws of nature tell us, you know, if I have a particle, another particle, how do they interact? What, how do they accelerate? How do they move? What are the forces that are exerted on them? So if you could have built a motor in the fireball of the Big Bang, it would have operated on the same principles as now, although you wouldn't have been able to because you've been vaporized. Um, but what does change as you go back, particularly at this moment I described where the Higgs field switched on, that moment rearranged all the ingredients of the universe. So it rearranged the properties of all the particles. So actually, the fundamental forces that exist in the universe today had a completely different form before this moment. And the Higgs field basically allowed them to take on their current form. In fact, even the matter particles that we know, there were different numbers of them uh, because basically the particles that we are made of are actually mixtures of particles that have right and left-handed spin. And so the basic ingredients would look very different. The laws that govern how they behave would be the same, but the forces, the particular forces, the particular particles would have not looked the same. So again, there's a question about uh, the graviton and where that fits into the standard model. Yeah, so, so gravitons are the sort of the analogue of, say, the photon. For, so you have an electromagnetic field, a photon is the ripple in the electromagnetic field, graviton is the ripple in space-time. So in principle, a gravitational wave is made up of lots and lots of gravitons, but the gravitons are so fantastically weak that, that we haven't yet found a way of detecting them individually. Um, I didn't really talk about this quantum gravity, which is, I guess, well, for a long time has been one of the holy grails of physics. So this is a theory that would combine quantum mechanics, the language that we use to describe particle physics, with gravitation, which we currently describe using Einstein's general theory of relativity. And one of the reasons that a quantum gravity theory would be exciting is that it would allow us to study, well, at least theoretically study the moment of the Big Bang. Because at the moment of the Big Bang, the universe is so small and dense that quantum gravitational effects would have been very important. Um, the reason I don't really get into it is because I'm an experimentalist, and so far at least, there aren't any prospects of measuring uh, at least not these high-energy quantum gravitational effects. Now, I believe there are some proposals to try to detect individual gravitons using, in fact, I think possibly even using LIGO. Now, I'm not, I don't know if there's a, any experts on gravitational waves in the room. There might be, but I think that is right. So there, there may be ways of, measure, of potentially detecting the imprint of low-energy quantum gravity. But in terms of the sort of high-energy quantum gravity, which is the quantum gravity that would have dominated at the moment of the Big Bang, at the moment we have no way of probing that kind of physics. And it's kind of even hard to imagine how we ever will. And the reason for that is basically that the best way we found of studying the physical stuff and the ingredients of our universe is by colliding things with colliders. 
if you want to probe the energy scales of quantum gravity, with current technology, you'd need a particle accelerator the size of the Milky Way. So you might call it the impossibly large Hadron Collider. <laughs> in fact, I have a little satirical bit in the book where I imagine the far distant future where we've built such a thing. Um, but that's not going to get funded anytime soon. We're going to have to come up with some kind of pan-galactic collaboration if we're going to do that. <laughs> I think there's another question uh, somewhere in the centre. Yeah, uh, um, around uh, the value, the 246 value for this field, and uh, what is your speculation at this stage? Um, would that be in regards to the multiverse theory? Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to make any speculations because it's way beyond my pay grade. But, I mean, th th there are a few different ideas which I didn't get into for, for time, reasons of time. But um, the most popular solution to this problem is something called supersymmetry, which is a theory that the idea has been around for, for some decades now. And one of the, well, the key reason that supersymmetry, we thought we, well, physicists thought that they might see supersymmetry at the LHC is that if supersymmetry is right, and what supersymmetry basically says is that there are, there's a new symmetry in nature which relates forces to force particles to matter particles. So what technically are known as fermions and bosons. So matter particles are all fermions, they all have spin one half, so particles behave like they have a little, uh, they're spinning effectively. And then there are the force particles, which are bosons, which have either spin one uh, or spin zero in the case of the Higgs. And in supersymmetry, every particle in the standard model gets a superversion where it's exactly the same, but it has, if it's a fermion, it becomes a boson, and if it's a boson, it becomes a fermion. And they're called sparticles. Um, <laughs> Uh, they all have very silly names like selectrons. Uh, my least favourite, I think, is the strange squark, um, which tends to make you spit in your person you're talking to's eye. Um, anyway, the reason these, this, this is a promising idea, one of the main reasons it's promising is that if supersymmetry is right, it explains why the Higgs field has this particular value, for technical reasons I won't get into. Um, but, um, so that, that's one solution. Another solution was maybe there's extra dimensions of space uh, and that, that's something that people are also looking for. If that's right, then you can make micro black holes at the LHC. Again, we haven't seen that. So the, the most promising ideas, at least in their, most, in their simplest forms, that have been looked for at the LHC haven't been found. Now, that isn't to say they won't still be found. The LHC is going to run for another 15 years, more or less. And my colleagues at CMS are, are still searching hard for these things. They may well show up. It may just be that they're a bit more difficult to, to see. They're a less vanilla version of what we were expecting, and they're hiding in the data. So maybe we will see them. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, if we don't find a solution to this problem, another ready-made solution is the multiverse, which is the idea that there are multiple universes, and the basic argument would be if there are huge numbers of different universes, they all have different values of the Higgs field, and we live in the one we do because it's the only one, one of the only very small number where the conditions are right for life. The problem I have with the idea of the multiverse is that it's untestable because if there are other universes, well, by definition, the universe is the thing we can observe, so any, any other universes we cannot observe. So the multiverse, in a way, is a bit like God, right? You, you can't disprove the existence of God. So God could unzip the sky one day and say, hello. Um, and the same way the multiverse could show up if another universe, say, pushed into ours and changed the way that things were arranged on the sky. But if that doesn't happen, that doesn't mean that the multiverse doesn't exist. So it's not, it's not testable. 
And the other problem is it's sort of an all-purpose solution to any problem you can think of. So, you know, it, it's, it explains why the Higgs field has its value. Maybe it also explains why there's matter in the universe. Maybe just by random chance in our universe, there just happened to be a bit more matter. Uh, but you can take this to ridiculous levels. You could say, well, you know, why did uh, my mum and dad, for example, meet at a British telecom training conference in 1974? Well, it was the multiverse. <laughs> because if it, wasn't for, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here. So that's sort of an anthropic argument taken to the extreme. So... So yeah, it's, it's a possibility, and it could be right, of course. It could be that there are other universes. And the history of science has sort of showed us that every time we've understood more about the universe, we've realized that our, our place is less and less special. So the idea that our universe is one of many sort of makes sense philosophically, but we'll never know. So, that, so we would, I'm certainly, you're not supposed to have prejudices as, as experimentalists, I guess, but I'd much prefer that we found a solution to the problem rather than just going, oh, it was a multiverse. <laughs> and just to clarify, you said under supersymmetry... Would that also apply to antimatter particles? Would they also have their supersymmetric? Yes, anti there would be anti-strange anti squarks, anti-sparticles. Oh, yeah, that seems yeah. far too complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so, there's a question online uh, from Roger, uh, who is asking about something that wasn't, uh, I don't think, on your standard model, which are neutrinos. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> it sounded like you were slightly trepidatious Those about this question. Yeah. So, Roger was just asking: Do neutrinos acquire mass via Higgs or not? And if so. Yeah. We don't know we yet, don't know. is the answer. <laughs> so they might do. Neutrinos are weird because neutrinos have really, really tiny masses. Their masses are millions of times smaller, I think, than, than the electron even, for example, or at least hundreds of thousands of times smaller. Um, although we haven't measured their masses directly yet. So they could get their mass from the Higgs field, but um, the, the kind of weird question is, well, why are they so light compared to all the other particles? Mm. Another possibility is they get their mass from something called the Majorana mechanism, which is very technical. But for that to be right, basically what that means is that neutrinos and antineutrinos are the same thing, that there is actually, that they're the same particle, basically. And if that's true, they get their mass from a different sort of process. So they might get it from the Higgs field, but they might get it from a, a different kind of mechanism. Fantastic. Thank you. Is there a question at the front? Can you explain why there seems to be more matter than antimatter in no. <laughs> so the question was about, um, is there We'd love to be able to tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what, you know, that's what me and my colleagues and my boss Val, who's here, one of the questions that we work on at LHCB is, is that question. And so one of the things that we do, for example, one of my things my colleagues do is they, again, looking at these beauty particles. Another reason they're interesting is because uh, beauty particles, you never actually see a beauty quark on its own. It, it binds up with another quark to make something called a meson. Um, and these mesons, these beauty mesons, they have this strange property, which is they can oscillate between their matter and antimatter versions. So you can do various measurements where you, what, you see how often, how much time do they spend as matter, how much time do they spend as antimatter, roughly speaking. And if you see a big difference, that can be evidence of a new kind of matter-antimatter symmetry breaking that could help answer this question. So that's one of the other ways we might try to get you know, uh, answers to this problem. Um, but we, we don't know, no, we don't know yet. So uh, a few people online, including a 12-year-old, uh, thanks uh, for that uh, question, says, could we ever work out if anything uh, happened before the Big Bang, or what happened before the Big Bang? Or does, is it basically we've wound the clock back and it just comes to this point and there would never be... A, it's sort of a meaningless question because there is no time or mm. universe before that. So how, how would we ever know? Do you think it would ever be possible to know? So, well... Um I, I, yeah, the, the, I spoke to actually a colleague at Cambridge who's a theoretical physicist who's spoken here in this lecture. He's one of the most watched videos, I think, which is oh, David, David Tong. Tong. Yeah, and yeah. he's worked on the sort of ideas a bit like this in the past, I think. But th this process of inflation 
basically suggests that we probably can't. And the reason is you have this incredibly rapid expansion. So as I said in the, in the talk, any information from an earlier period gets carried out of view. We'll never be able to access it. So if inflation in its sort of understood, its sort of accepted form is right, then we probably won't ever get any information from before that time. Now, there are some qualifiers. I think Roger Penrose, I remember going to a talk when I was a student by Roger Penrose, who won the Nobel Prize last year, mm -hmm. and he was working on an idea that you might see shapes in the cosmic microwave background, so in this radiation left over from the Big Bang. I think he was looking for sort of circular patterns on the sky that in his particular model would be produced by the, the sort of echo of an earlier universe from before the, 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 the Big Bang. Um, and they looked for them and didn't find them. Um, so, I mean, there are people who, who do think about these things seriously and, and come up with suggested observations that you might make. But at least, I think, in the sort of the accepted cosmological model, inflation is basically like a barrier, and that says, you know, that's your lot. That's, mm. as, that's as far as you can go, which is possibly a little bit frustrating. But on the other hand, it does mean that we, we've got something to aim for. <laughs> but, the, but there does seem to be these hard limits elsewhere in physics where you, know, yeah. you can never know the momentum and the mass and particle. You know what I mean? Like there, yeah. there are written into the yeah. laws of nature and into physics these kind of barriers that mean you can never know X because of the way the universe is set up. It's, yeah, it's, it wouldn't be unusual, I guess. And that's one of the, actually, it's one of the things I discuss in the very final chapter is you know, the limits of what's knowable. And there's no reason, actually, with a lot of these questions, the universe doesn't have to be nice to us. It could just leave us with these mysteries and never allow us to know the answers because of the particular way that the laws of physics are configured. Um, but we're still plugging away anyway and see, see if we can get answers. Fantastic. We've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, any more questions? Person in the front. So again, for those at home, uh, it's all about when the Higgs field was switched on and were other fields switched on and off. Yeah. So, well, in the fields that we know about in the universe today... As I said, they all have a value of zero. Well, not quite zero, because you can't, because of quantum mechanics, you can never know that something has an energy of zero. So there's this quantum fluctuations that go on. Um, but the Higgs field has a non-zero value, and that's it's the only one, it's the only field like it that we know that has this property. Um, so the other fields, they are affected by the Higgs field. So, for example, the masses of the particles that are produced in those fields change when the Higgs field comes on. But I think otherwise, those fields sort of haven't changed. They have, there wasn't a phase transition in quite the same way. Now, there may be other fields that we don't know, yet know about that went through other transitions earlier in the history of the universe. But the Higgs field is quite special in that way. It's the only one, as far as we know, that actually went through this change where it went from zero and acquired its current value. And the big question is, why did it do that? And why didn't it end up somewhere completely different? Why did it end up in this particular Goldilocks place, which means we can, can exist? Fantastic. Uh, oh, so many questions. Uh, How are you that they were evidence for Well, I, I don't know if I have a, have a strong view about that per se, but I mean, I know that, you know, um, something that's quite, so at Cambridge, um, there's a, a group of experimentalists and theorists who meet every week um, on a Wednesday morning, which for many years was called the supersymmetry working group. So they were a group of theorists and experimentalists, and they came up with ideas for things you could look for at the LHC. And I think it was in 2019, uh, they quietly rebranded themselves as the phenomenology working group. Um, <laughs> so I think that maybe gives you a hint of the relative levels of optimism. So a lot of people who spent a long time working on supersymmetry they haven't given up on it necessarily, but they're saying, well, we didn't see it in the first few years of the LHC. We're probably not going to see it immediately. It may come, as I said, in you know, a decade or something from now when we have a lot more data. But for now, at least, it's probably not where the action is. Um, the most, I mean, and actually what these, this group now discuss a lot of the time are these anomalies that I talked about that are seen by LHCB and this experiment at Fermilab. So those are the sort of promising areas. Now, those anomalies could be connected to supersymmetry in some way, but we, we're still, it's still too early to say. 
And another theory that people are mentioning in the chat, actually, is string theory. You haven't mentioned the word string at all in this entire presentation. Do you think yeah. it's now sort of old news and nobody cares about it? Or is it a theory and you're an experimentalist <laughs> and show me the evidence and then you'll talk yeah. about it? A couple of reasons I didn't mention it. One is I don't understand it. Um, as, uh, and, <laughs> uh, um, and, and you know, lots of people have given talks about string theory. It's discussed endlessly. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a really... And I, I, did it, I spoke to string theorists when I was searching the book. And... It's definitely, a, you know, it's a really fruitful area of mathematical exploration, lots of useful stuff, not just to do with quantum gravity and theories of everything, but understanding quark-gluon plasmas, like the one I talked about that they produce at this experiment in New York. So they, they're using it for various different things. They're making discoveries in pure mathematics using string theory. But at least so far, string theory has yet to make contact with the experimental world. And it's quite hard for the foreseeable future to see how it will. Set up a meeting every Wednesday morning? No? Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, there is, I mean, I, some people, I, I, one person I spoke to, uh, who I won't name, he, he's, he, he was a string theorist, but he got very frustrated because he says he thinks a lot of his colleagues have very little interest in connecting with experiment. And he actually works in string phenomenology, so trying to think of things you might look at, particularly relating to the early universe, where you might get evidence of string theory. Um, but basically, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's interesting, it's really important, but it's not yet making experimental predictions, and therefore, I, I, that's why I didn't go into it, really. Yeah, it seems to be a recurring theme, actually. Multiverse, string theory, anything you can't test, you're not so interested in. Yeah. <laughs> so, just uh, time for a few more questions. Uh, Hank? Mm -hmm. So, for those at home, there's a question about dark energy and dark matter and whether they'd have similar properties. And what was the first question? I forgot now. <laughs> about the existence of... Yeah, so yeah. It, if, if they were discovered, yeah, yeah. will they uh, yeah. mess up all the results from the LHC? Yeah. Well, just, for, just, for, just for reference, this is, this is the sort of the next pie chart in the series of what the universe is made from. So we have 5% atoms, that's all the stuff I've been talking about, the stuff in the apple pie, and then there's 95% dark stuff, dark energy and dark matter, which are really just words to cover our ignorance. They basically mean... Mm. Um, <laughs> so um, if we were to discover what dark matter was, and that's one of the big goals of the LHC. A lot of my colleagues at the LHC were searching for dark matter particles, and there are also experiments going on underground where we look at, people are looking for dark matter. If it was discovered, it would open up a new set of ingredients of our universe, and it, would probably, it could well be connected to these other questions. It's not guaranteed that that's true, but if you learn something fundamental about the world, then that's, that's going to be exciting, and it could well open up a whole load of other issues that you were trying to solve. So they could be connected. And... An example of this is supersymmetry. So supersymmetry actually explained... The reason supersymmetry was so popular... Was, well, I say it was so popular, it still is popular for some people. It solves the problem with the Higgs field, it explained what dark matter was, and it also, in some cases, explained why there's more matter in the universe than antimatter. So they could, they could be connected, or they might not be connected. But if we, were, if we were to learn something about them, that would be hugely important. Um, to your question about whether the equivalence of matter and energy would still be true for dark matter, well, yes, because... Dark matter, we would imagine, is just another quantum field with a particle associated with it. It would obey the same laws of physics. And the equivalence of matter and energy is a, is a, is a sort of a law as, as opposed to the particular particles that happen to exist. So, yes, the same physics would apply. Excellent. Uh, so, as, uh, as we sort of draw to, towards the end of the event, uh, there's a question for somebody's uh, four-year-old here. He uh, oh, says... Uh, Given how much we don't know, still don't know, what area of science would you recommend a father gets his four-year-old daughter to focus on as his retirement plan? 
I mean, like, That's his retirement plan. I mean, learn to code is generally quite good I advice. I mean, none but, of this, because you're yeah. not going to make any money. Um, <laughs> I did have an idea, actually, for setting up an alternative therapy centre where you use neutrinos to treat people. Oh, nice. So you can kind of say you're getting, <laughs> getting very expensive neutrinos from CERN. It's going to cure all your ailments. A bit like homeopathy or something. But um, short of scamming people out of their money, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, in terms of the things that I think are really interesting areas at the moment, obviously I think the stuff I work on is really interesting and, and these anomalies are really exciting. Gravitational waves, I think, are really exciting as well. That, you know, the thing that's great about gravitational waves is, and actually um, at Cambridge, led by Val Gibson, who's my boss, uh, they're working on a project uh, to build a gravitational wave detector called Aeon. Um, this is a whole new type of astronomy. So it's, it's a bit like when you know, Galileo first used the telescope to look at the heavens, you suddenly you discover a whole load of new things very, very quickly. So gravitational waves is like that, and it could be as revolutionary. It's a new way of looking at the universe, and we're already discovering new things that we didn't know about black holes and, and neutron stars, as I, as I discussed. So I think that would be a, definitely an area that you should, should think about. Um, yeah, and in terms of making money, I have no idea. I wish I was any good at that. <laughs> and just to say that normally when people ask these kind of questions um, about what, what should you study at university or what should you learn, I always just say maths. The more maths you know, the rest of your life it just gives you tools that you can then apply to absolutely anything you want to do, going into mm. business, being a particle physicist. I just think the, the, the more A-level maths or you know, GCSE maths and whatever you can learn early on, I think that always puts you in good stead to do whatever kind of science or not science you want to do? I don't know. Uh, did, were, you, were you a maths geek at school, or was it really physics for you that you really I mean, went into? I mean, I hesitate to say this, but I, I was never very good at maths. <laughs> um, I mean, okay, when I say I wasn't very good at maths, I, I was pretty good at maths compared to most people, but compared to people who are actually good at maths, I wasn't very good at maths. That's, that's um, not me. <laughs> so, so I was. I never. I think the thing with maths is I never. No one ever explained to me what maths was. So you remember being told how to solve second-order differential equation at school, and you're given this recipe basically for how you do it. And I was like, okay, but so what? Like, why? why? Why is this the recipe? And no one ever explained that maths is essentially a set of rules. And then you play this logical game, a bit like kind of a crossword or a Sudoku or something, and you figure out the consequences of those rules. If someone had told me that, I think I might have liked maths more, but I didn't realise that until way too late. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's sad to say, uh, being no good at maths is what sort of stalled me at about first-year physics, and then I couldn't uh, yeah. get any further. So I, I, think, I think Einstein said he was bad at maths as well, so <laughs> if that gives you any comfort... <laughs> Uh, so we've probably got time for like, one more question, so if you want to ask it, make it good, uh, person there. <laughs> oh, yeah. so it's a question again about uh, using AI to make discoveries. I assume with the buckets of data that come out of the LHC, nobody can yeah. look at it all, so you must have to use some kind of yeah. machine learning to get to grips with stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a really important part of what we do. So to give you a sense of the data volumes that are created, the LHC collides protons inside each of the experiments 40 million times a second. And in each of those collisions, there may actually be 40 or 50 or 100 collisions. So you get billions of collisions every second. That happens 24 hours a day, seven days a week for about nine months of the year. So you're talking of tens of petabytes or more of data every year. So, um, yeah, and so what, what you're generally looking for, you're looking for some tiny signal buried in that data set. And the sort of, when we started out, the sort of simple thing you would do is you set a set of what are called cuts, but they're basic requirements. You say, you know, this particle has to have a momentum bigger than this, an energy bigger than this, has to be going in that direction, and then you use those sort of requirements to filter the stuff you're interested in. But you can do much better with machine learning. So I use relatively simple kinds of machine learning in, in the data analysis that I do in order to extract. I, I work on very, very rare decays of these beauty quarks, and so we're looking for you know, events that only happen one in a billion, sorry, yeah, sometimes one in a billion times or, or, or around that order. So to try to get those tiny little grains of 
you know, gold dust out of this huge swamp. We use a lot, a lot of uh, machine learning. And but it's going to be an, an even more important area in the future. So what's currently happening at LHCB and will soon be happening at the other LHC experiments is the experiments are being upgraded to allow them to record data at even higher rates. And the reason for this is after a few years of running, you get this law of diminishing returns where each year of data is a smaller and smaller proportion of what you've already got. So to discover new stuff, you then have to go to an order of magnitude faster data collection rate. And that has all kinds of challenges for computing, for storage, processing. And so when we restart um, uh, next year, hopefully, increasingly there'll be machine learning algorithms running live on the experiments. They'll be running in what are called the triggers which are these very rapid algorithms that look at each event one by as they come in and decide whether to keep them or not because we can't store that volume of data. So yeah, it's, it's a, basically the short answer is very, very important. But also it's another really good example of how CERN and the LHC um, are just at the cutting edge of computing. That you know, I, I was using a thing called the web earlier. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. and so that's just one example of the sort of the... the computing power and knowledge and, and technology that's kind of come out of uh, the work that you do at CERN, I think. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I think I'm probably going to have to draw this uh, event to a close as uh, the time is uh, somewhat against us. But I uh, just want to say a big thank you all for coming. It's been uh, fantastic to be in front of a live audience rather than just in my living room staring at my laptop. So uh, thank you so much. Um, oh, just before we go, uh, I believe you have a website or you're on Twitter if people want to say hello and yes, send you I'm, messages. I'm, my website's harrycliff.co.uk. You can find out what I've been up to. And, and also I'm on Twitter at Harry V. Cliff. So yeah, follow me if you've enjoyed this. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for an absolutely wonderful talk. And uh, yeah, best of luck with the book. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating and comment. And remember, you can support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Get Harry Clough's book, How to Make an Apple Pie from Scratch, to go even deeper into the fundamental physics of the universe. And you can learn more about a whole host of science topics through our other talks. Go to rigb.org to see what talks we have coming up.